Hey, it's Melvin, one of your friendly neighborhood podcast hosts. Whether it's your first time tuning in or you're a longtime listener, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever. Reviews are the lifeblood of the podcast world, so if you want to help us out, it'll take only a moment of your time. Otherwise, we hope you enjoy the show. Hi, my name's Melvin, and Ang Lee's vision was better. Welcome to Cinematic Doctrine, a Christian podcast service that seeks to encourage and equip Christians to engage and reform the culture of cinema. In this episode, Daniel and I look at Louis Litterer's often forgotten and occasionally interesting The Incredible Hulk. Funnily enough, Daniel and I recorded this episode a few weeks ago and had stepped away disappointed. We felt it wasn't very good, but when you have deadlines to meet, you gotta do with what you have. Then I started editing the episode and thought to myself, you know what? This episode isn't that bad. So there you have it. Quote me on it. This episode isn't that bad. Of course, I'm joking around. It really did turn out well, but the circumstances of recording were difficult. I had just gotten over being sick. Daniel had been awake for well over 24 hours. It was amazing we ever recorded at all. But God took care of everything, as it were, and the conversation turned out well. From the start, we talk about what a strange experience The Incredible Hulk is and how this anomaly is still considered canon in the Marvel Cinematic Universe despite having very little direct mentions or callbacks to the events of the film. We also contemplate how The Incredible Hulk functions as a standalone movie with little to no involvement in the Marvel Cinematic Universe at large, save for ridiculously small allusions that are easy to miss. And finally, we discuss whether or not it's mature to not just watch a movie but laugh or mock it, despite the time and effort many people had in making it. Now, if you haven't seen The Incredible Hulk, which, as it turns out, might be normal, don't worry. I've got you covered. I'm going to give you a quick rundown on what The Incredible Hulk is all about. And this is largely sourced from IMDb. Depicting the events after the Gamma Bomb, The Incredible Hulk tells the story of Dr. Bruce Banner, who seeks a cure to his unique condition, which causes him to turn into a giant green monster under emotional stress. Whilst on the run from the military, which seeks his capture, Banner comes close to a cure. But things are complicated when he sees the potential to reunite with his love, Betty Ross, the daughter of General Thunderbolt Ross, the same man that's trying to capture him. The Incredible Hulk is rated PG-13 for sequences of intense action violence, some frightening sci-fi images, and brief suggestive content. These sequences of intense action violence are mostly scenes of a big, green, giant monster tearing things apart like machines and tanks. They also include fights between characters either as totally normal humans or, like I said, with a big green monster. The frightening sci-fi images are largely about the transformation scenes that take place with certain characters. Also, the final action set piece in the movie is quite nightmarish as characters duke it out in a populated area. The brief suggestive content is due to a scene where a character is trying to escape a building, and as he climbs down, there's a woman changing. You don't see anything, but the implication is still present. Also, two characters have a sensual encounter that gets touchy-feely before choosing not to go through with their temptations. Mostly, the scene is just awkward. Now, before we head into our The Incredible Hulk discussion, I wanted to share real quick that if you've come to enjoy Cinematic Doctrine, consider leaving a review for the podcast on your respective podcast app at the end of this episode. Unlike YouTube or Reddit, there isn't really a way to let us know how we're doing with a thumbs up or thumbs down, so the best way to leave your thoughts on the podcast is to write a review on iTunes, Podchaser, or wherever you listen. Apart from that, Cinematic Doctrine also has a Patreon. 
For those who don't know, Patreon is a website for independent content creators to raise support for their work. By creating an account on Patreon, you can select a content creator you like and support them with a monthly donation. If you enjoy Cinematic Doctrine and would like to support the show, consider donating, as it helps cover the cost of producing the podcast. And as a bonus, if you support Cinematic Doctrine for as little as $3 a month, you're opted into a once-a-month movie poll, where you decide a movie we discuss on the podcast. You also gain access to the Syndoc pre-show, the upcoming Patreon-exclusive podcast series, where my co-host Daniel and I casually talk movies, Christianity, and life itself. There are other unique benefits that come with supporting the podcast, so be sure to check them out at patreon.com forward slash cinematic doctrine. Without further ado, here's our thoughts on The Incredible Hulk. I don't know why this movie isn't retconned at all. It's, it's, it's more ignored. And I, to me, that's one of the most interesting things about it, is how it's a movie that officially 100% exists in the MCU canon, but they also make zero reference to it but like in a way that's kind of weird especially when you look at the rest of the mcu where every movie like has all these elements that they just keep bringing back and like there's deep cut characters that come back and with one exception well secretly two exceptions other than outside of the hulk himself there just is no reference to this movie which is weird because they specifically set up things for future films that just don't come back at all I mean, I know that there's one big thing which we can talk about later. It's not really spoilers because every big comic book movie has a big comic book villain. But I know that one particular character was speculated to be used in Age of Ultron, which was not used. And thank goodness, once we get there, I'll talk about that. But uh, yeah, it's just like it's watching it was an anomaly. So for before we really dig into it, to anybody listening, this was my first time watching it. Like I had never, I had never seen the incredible Hulk. I kind of didn't know Edward Norton was the Hulk until probably like three or four years ago. And that's only for the one movie. I wasn't sure if this was this movie or the Ang Lee version, which I know was also the case for people when the first film even came out or like if it was even a sequel to the Ang Lee uh, film. And thank goodness it's not. It is in spirit. I mean, yeah, I guess so. Because it starts out by just skipping past. It almost does what we do nowadays with superhero movies. It just skips the origin. What's so interesting about this movie to me is it's it's a lot of things and no things. This movie began production as a direct sequel to Ang Lee's Hulk movie. And you see elements of that in the script. It starts out essentially where the last movie left off, where... Angley's Hulk movie ends with him in Brazil. And this movie just begins with Edward Norton in Brazil. There's an early scene where Thunder wasn't it Thunderbolt Ross, correct? Played by William Hurt, is mentioning things the Hulk has done, and he's listing off things that happened in the Angley Hulk movie. Which is weird because if you just if you because the movie begins with that supercut of like his origin story, which I actually like. I think I wish more superhero movies would just do that so that we wouldn't have to deal with watching um, Benedict Cumberbatch be a sad doctor for like an hour and a half but then like if you just go by that he just pretty much hurt Betty and then ran away but then Thunderbolt Ross is mentioning all these people at the Hulk is allegedly killed that just doesn't make sense in the universe with the movie until you think about like oh that's right there's still elements of that script still in here somewhere did you like the concept of the introduction thing like during the credits or the film or you mean like you just like it and you think that's like one of the best parts of the movie 
better parts of the movie. I like when they sort of accept like this is the Incredible Hulk. Everyone knows who this character is. Kind of like with honestly what they did in Batman for Superman, where you just see all of Batman's origin in like five minutes. Because gosh darn, I don't need to see Bruce Wayne's parents get shot for like the millionth time and see Bruce Wayne cry about it. I think I like when they're just like, okay, people already know this story. Let's move that out of the way and move on to something else. I like that aspect of it. I do too. But I must say that that intro thing was way too disorienting for me to even enjoy. Because <laughs> it like it starts and like you get quick cuts in a first person like vision and then it rewinds. And so I'm like, oh, okay, so it's going to kind of show it again, but in detail. But then when it finishes rewinding, it just jumps all the way back forward, like past that. And I know that like at, it only takes a second for my brain to realize, okay, what I thought was going to happen isn't what's going to happen. But it was so disorienting that I just was like, this is going to be the entire movie. Like, I'm just going to have no real clue of what's going on. And the editing is going to almost make me just like, mentally sick because i have to keep playing catch up to figure out what's going on which isn't far from the truth of my experience i definitely finished it with like an aneurysm maybe or a migraine or maybe even just a slight pain so i'm guessing you didn't like this movie no (laughs) (laughs) it was so boring uh it's just like when I was when I was watching this movie, I was thinking about like when you go to like a friend's house and like things are just off and like you like this person, but like all of their photos are hanging incorrectly and the couch is just not like firm enough and their TV's colors aren't very good. There's kind of like a stench that's like it's just a little bad, but like every now and then you forget about it and then it comes back. And all of these things are like not horrible by themselves, but when you put all of them together, you start to realize like maybe something is horribly wrong here. And I just, I just feel like the Incredible Hulk is exactly that. Like it's just, (laughs) you think it's safe because it's a Marvel movie, because it's a MCU movie, but then you start it and like it's humorless, uh, but it, but it tries to be funny at times, but it's just humorless. It's characterless, but you can tell it's trying with certain scenes, like certain scenes that are supposed to be romantic or or have like some sort of comedy to their character, like a levity, but it just never lands. Do you remember when he walks out of the pizzeria and what's Liv Tyler's there and she sees him and then he hides and Edward Norton hides, but then like they show her step out into the alley and he's just hiding behind the dumpster. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Something about that. Just, (laughs) I just burst into laughter (laughs) because it just looks so stupid. Like why did he just not like keep running? Why did he just go to the dumpster? And then Liv Tyler looks like she just saw like a ghost and wants to investigate, but she just steps out the door, kind of looks around and just walks away. I don't know something about everything that scene. Like it's the sort of thing where like in theory, writing that into a script is like, yeah, this is where the story would go. And maybe this is what would happen, but how it's executed just seems so stale. Yeah. And this whole movie is so stale. So I don't really know. I mean, this, this is like, this was horribly boring, which I was prepared for. 
when we prepped to do this episode, I messaged Daniel and I said, I just need someone to talk Incredible Hulk. And Daniel, you sound like you remember a lot of the history behind this movie. Uh, and so yeah. let's do it. And he goes, oh, man, that movie's so boring. <laughs> and I just like I didn't I mean, I believed you, but I just didn't think like. I didn't think it was this possible to be so boring. <laughs> yeah. So this this was my I rewatched it for this. I literally just finished it about 10 minutes ago. Yeah. So this is my third time watching it. And I would say overall, the third time, this is probably my best time watching it. The first time I saw it, I didn't see it in great conditions. I was in like a college dorm room and there were a bunch of us watching it together. So I wouldn't say I gave it my full attention. And funnily enough, I rewatched this because a friend of mine and I were thinking of doing an MCU rewatch like podcast leading up to Endgame. And then for various reasons, that just didn't come together. But I rewatched it for that, too. And I just struggled so mightily to get through it. And this time, after having watched all of the MCU, and at this point, I've watched so many of these films. I've seen a lot of these films multiple times now, just because I like to kind of like rewatch them before like big event films. And by now, we've had four Avengers movies, so... I found it kind of charming and how almost consequenceless everything in this movie is. None of the, and I think it's almost impossible at this point to rewatch this movie and give it a fair shake because you are acutely aware that nothing in this movie matters. His entire relationship with Betty Ross never comes back. Uh, once this movie's over, she is never mentioned again, which is really strange because he is her she is his um the hulk's entire motivation for everything he does his whole movie all he cares about is getting back to betty is curing himself of this disease you know potentially who knows maybe he could live a normal life with her and then by the time we get to avengers like with mark ruffalo she's never mentioned again and it's even weirder because they do eventually bring back thunderbolt ross for civil war and he essentially is a different character by this point because he makes no mention of any of the stuff with him, like chasing the Hulk. And he makes no mention of the fact like, hey, by the way, one of the Avengers is in love with my daughter. Like that never gets mentioned. And it's really strange. And it like, in hindsight, it makes his movie so just a weird, such a weird watch where nothing in it like comes back and nothing in it kind of ever like has a larger impact on the larger film franchise which retroactively kind of is what makes it somewhat interesting to me because we kind of don't get superheroes movies like this anymore. This began earnestly as just a remake, uh, uh, not remake, as a sequel to Ang Lee's Hulk film. And then during production, they didn't get any of the returning cast members. And so they hired on um, Louis Letterer. How do you pronounce his name? The director? Oh my goodness. I like... I completely forget. I'm about to go look. But he he directed Transporter One and Two. He went on to direct uh, Clash of the Titans. So he's a fairly competent like action director. And then Zach Penn wrote the screenplay or the first draft of the screenplay. He wrote like X Men like two and three. He would go on to write do writing on like the Avengers movie. And so and then Edward Norton gets brought on, and he Edward Norton does an almost like entire uncredited rewrite of the movie he takes out like um other marvel characters i think rick stoner if that's his name is supposed to be it was supposed to be in the movie he just wrote him out entirely shield was supposed to be like in the movie and outside of a few references to them he like removed them from the script and so like it just became this like entirely new hulk movie from the ground up where edward norton is like a big fan of the character and he has all these ideas for what to do with the franchise and so it just becomes a standalone superhero movie with the marvel property which also is kind of interesting 
And all these things around the movie are so much more interesting than almost a single thing that happens within the movie itself. I want to go on record as saying I really like the first 30 minutes of this movie. I like the angle that the Hulk, just the Hulk himself is like an affliction that Edward Norton's like Bruce Banner has to deal with, has trying to cure himself with. I think that's an interesting take on the um, subject matter. I like the idea that he's trying to like learn to do like breathing exercises to control it. He's with Rickson Gracie, who's like a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner, although he's credited as an Aikido practitioner. He's learning breathing exercises. And he's just trying to live his life in like Brazil by himself while trying to like hold the monster within. And then he gets to the United States with Betty Ross and all the stuff with him and Betty just falls completely flat for me. It is simultaneously too melodramatic to be enjoyable, but there's not enough actual substance there to get me invested so it's just like watching a weird soap opera. And they have no charisma. They have zero, zero connection. Nothing about them feels like they care about each other. They like look at each other, but like they're not looking at each other. It's <laughs> it's almost as disorienting as, um, oh man, this talks about how forgettable this movie was. Episode nine, when they're, when Ray has to talk to Leia, but you know Leia's not there because she's dead. Wow. And so she's like talking to a CG, like, you know, it's like totally CG. And like, you can just tell that Ray, uh, Daisy Ridley is not looking at who she is looking at. Yeah. And that's like the charisma of these characters. And they're actually in the presence of each other. Uh, it's just like, it is, it's, and it's, and because it takes up so much. And like you right. said, is Bruce Banner's motivation. It just doesn't, it falls apart. Like everything surrounding their romance doesn't work. The, the Incredible Hulk is like classic Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. And even the history of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde is like the character is very disgusting and sexist and objectifying. And then the Incredible Hulk movie is like, it's not any of those things, I guess. Not really. But it's just as like disgustingly characterless and valueless. <laughs> I mean, okay, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde has value as as a, a metaphor. The thing about this movie is, as I keep talking about it, so here's the thing. Let me talk to you about this, Mr. Listener. Okay. Me and Daniel have been talking about, I've been talking to Daniel about doing this episode for a while now, and I've acted as though, and I have had interesting thoughts to say, but the more we're talking here, the less... I have to say, <laughs> we're only 15 <laughs> minutes into this recording, and I'm starting to find out, I think Daniel was right, there's absolutely nothing to talk about this movie, except for I mean, the fact that, like, Stanley dies. That's it. <laughs> like, <laughs> Poor Stanley. I know, it's like, I can't believe Stanley died for this movie, it's insane. Yeah, um, it's, I really admire what they were going for. Like, I totally, you know, Edward Norton later, in he appeared like the Bruce to Bruce Willis, he talks about how like part of why he never came back is like the creative difference between Marvel because he had a lot of creative input into this movie and he really seems to be wanting to elevate the material to like this epic tragedy where like you have these like almost like Olympians like gods fighting each other and there's like this sadness of where like this monster is keeping this man apart from the woman he loves it just doesn't all these different elements to me just don't mix in a way that's like kind of satisfying where, I mean, I'm just going to say it. I do not like Liv Tyler as an actress. I do not enjoy her work and I think she's really bad here. I, her performance as Betty Ross is very flat. 
And the only time she really got any real emotion out that I found engaging was when she yells at a cab driver later in the movie. Well, even Edward Norton's really flat. I found Edward Norton very boring. He seems tired and not interested in the material, which is fascinating <laughs> to me as you're saying. He was, I knew he re uncredited rewrites. I knew he did that. But if you're saying like later on, he was saying like, elev like elevating it, like really? Like he doesn't look interested at all. <laughs> well, so they, they both him and Zach Penn have gone on record as saying a huge influence on this movie was the Incredible Hulk television show with you know Bill Bixby and uh, and Lou Ferrigno, which even they even included the sad Hulk music at one point in the movie, which I enjoyed where he's walking down the street. And then Lou Ferrigno um, actually has like a physical cameo in the movie and Lou Ferrigno actually did the voiceovers for the Hulk. He says Hulk smash and all that stuff. That's Lou Ferrigno. And I see that a lot in the movie where it's less a action film and more a sad drama of a man trying to find his place in the world as he wanders around and eventually ends up fighting abomination but it's just all my thing with movies that try to be pensive and slow and introspective is you need to say something and there really isn't much that they're trying to say with this other than you're watching bruce banner be sad and it's just i don't know it's just like you said, there's just something off about the whole movie and it's just nothing about it particularly connected with me where I'm trying to get invested in like this relationship between Betty Ross and Bruce Banner. There's this dynamic between Betty Ross and her father, Thunderbolt Ross. I liked Tim Roth as Blonsky. He's just like this like really skeevy evil dude. And by far my favorite part of the whole movie is when they finally meet up with this Mr. Blue who's been contacting Bruce Banner to try and help him find a cure. And it's actually Samuel Stearns, who comic book readers will know better as the leader. And Samuel, Tim Blake Nelson is just great. He's always great in everything he's in. And he's like, seems to be the only person aware of the fact he's in a comic book movie because he's kind of acting like kind of like a goofy cartoonish like mad scientist kind of character he's also just acting yeah he's also just acting which nobody else seems to really yeah. be interested in doing like edward norton is trying very hard to have this like sad everyman which like the dynamic is like okay this pathetic dude who becomes the hulk but it just comes off kind of like like you said, kind of like distant, almost like distant from the viewer and disinterested. Like he's asleep. Like he just woke <laughs> up and then was like going back to bed. Like he's going through like in real life. He just can't separate the real life things he's going through in his work. And he's not realizing maybe I could draw from that. Oh, no, I'm just too tired. <laughs> it's just like it's really strange. It is. What you're saying makes me sound like why doesn't he just play the same character he did from Fight Club? Just. <laughs> play a weak sad man who sells soap that was actually i think his performance in fight club was like named as something that someone one of the producers mentioned that as a reason for his casting was he could play these like dual dual characters and he did do the, like the motion capture for the hulk as did uh, tim uh, uh tim roth did for the abomination but yeah like i said the best scene in the entire movie is when tim roth meets tim blake nelson and it's uh, neil blonsky wants to become like the hulk and he's holding steamel sterns like at gunpoint like turn me into the hulk and they're having like a funny back and forth where like tim blake nelson's like but with the stuff already in you mixing it in it'll make it an abomination and they're having all these like big comic book comic book lines and i'm like okay a comic book movie just broke out in the middle of whatever this is where these two big cartoony villains are meeting face to face and we never see either of them again after this movie. Nope. There's one lot. There's a, there, in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. They mentioned that Blonsky is being held in like a tube somewhere in S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters or something like that. And there's a tie in comic that says that Black Widow captured 
the leader and they have him somewhere, but who knows how canon those tie-in comics are. The only other character that ever appears again, other than Thunderbolt Ross and the Hulk himself, is when Edward Norton's character goes to the lab to try and find his old data. There's like a tech student there, played by Martin Starr, and that guy later becomes Spider-Man's teacher. <laughs> Did you realize that? Wow. Bravo, Kevin Feige. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, nice he, job. Feige pulled it off again. It's amazing. Yeah, I um I don't know. I <laughs> just the fact that like my notes are pretty populated and like I just can't even think to look at them. I just feel so ashamed about watching this movie. There was something <laughs> so I finished it and I said to Catherine, I was like, I don't know. I don't feel good about watching The Incredible Hulk. I was, just because like everything was so off and wrong, like I finished it and even Catherine was like, I could probably just go shower right now and I would feel better. But like if I don't, I'm just going to go to bed and have bad dreams. And it's just like there's just something it's just so alien, like even the way it ends with um, just skipping to the ending as we do, even the way it ends with like the abomination fight, everything's really dark and red. So then it has like this nightmarish quality. And then like he's just like slaughtering Randy's from a distance. And it's just like so freaky. And then like for some reason, even though everybody's running away, people are constantly running away, even though like they would have all been gone. I don't know. It was just like watching a nightmare. <laughs> It was just strange. And I like horror movies. We've talked about plenty on the podcast here and we mention them every now and then too, but there was just something like, so just wrong. And then even thinking about demographic, which I, we kind of bring this up in the Iron Man episode, me and Caleb, but which is very good. And if you haven't listened to it, it's probably going to be much more beneficial to your Christian walk than this episode. But we talk he talks about how like the thing with these early films is they're going for comic book fans not everybody and then as the films develop they go for everybody which we unfortunately have to suffer through in phase two because they're trying to hit all the bases and it just isn't working out well and because they're going for comic book fans right now they know that comic book fans are testosterone heavy and sexist so they put in these scenes of like which i'm just generalizing please don't get irritated at me please don't at me but like you have these weird sexual scenes that just feel sort of off base, even in basically in like this Iron Man one and two, especially in two. And then even like just frightening scenes, too, where they just seem a little more more than I mean, not more than PG-13 because they're obviously PG-13 movies, but they almost feel like their split seconds are a bit more frightening. So do you remember um, this will be your second time listening to it, first time listening to it and second time in the next episode on Iron Man 2. But do you remember, Daniel, in Iron Man 2 when when Tony Stark shows off how like Hammer fails at making Iron Man suits, like in the beginning of the movie when they're in the when they're at the Senate? <sighs> Jeez. Yes, that he shows the test footage of like the guy dying. Yeah, the one guy who's like he's to turn right and then he turns right, but the suit twists all the way. So like yeah. you know like this guy's just dead. And of course Hammer's like, no, he lied, he lived, he lived. But like, you know, the original script probably just said he died. <laughs> like, yeah. And I even remember as a kid when I saw them in theaters and being like kind of I shuddered. Like I always thought, like, that's really frightening. I don't see what happens, but I know what just happened. And the guy just like it's eviscerated. Yeah. <laughs> like very, very RoboCop. Yeah, and I I cool I found that a little funny this time around watching it because like Iron Man 2 is a truly bizarre film. But these early films, these early Marvel films are not really going for kids, but they're also like selling toys that are clearly 
for kids unless you're getting the $80 action figure at like Comic-Con, in which case maybe you are a child, maybe. Um, <laughs> so it's just like, I just don't know what to feel about it. And so like when this film ended, I just felt like worse about phase one. I recognize like the historic, the entertainment history value of like, this phase and its way of it's building up and setting up and the way it handles what becomes one of the most massive properties in pop culture, let alone the Western culture in general. But like, I don't know if maybe you don't feel this way because maybe I'm just not as callous or perhaps I'm just softer. That's not supposed to be any sort of slight against you, Daniel, but like <laughs> what, like, what do you think about like these weird just weird kind of almost adult things in these early movies. Um, that's kind of, I mean, that's good. That is kind of somewhat of a broad question. Also apologies if my audio quality is not up to snuff. I'm in, I don't know if we, I don't know if the listeners are aware of this, but I'm recording this in like an Airbnb because I can't live at home because <laughs> of the pandemic and I work at a hospital. And obviously the best thing to soothe my loneliness was to watch the incredible Hulk, I guess. <laughs> a movie about a sad man who has no charisma with anyone else. <laughs> Maybe that's why I'm less harsh on this movie the third time watching it. As I was like, I feel like Edward Norton right now, just alone, wandering away from my Betty Ross. And the next series on Sindoc will be lonely movies. <laughs> <laughs> we'll watch Manchester. We'll watch Taxi Driver. Blue Valentine. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Could you imagine? <laughs> we'll all Todd Solange's movies. We'll start with kids. <laughs> that is somewhat of a broad question, but I there is something to be said for one of the things I liked about the Incredible Hulk watching it this time is you do get a sense that this is not a movie made with like an agenda. Like there isn't this movie's in, one of the things that's interesting purely for nerds is if you look at the production credits, both Avi Arad and Kevin Feige are listed as producers. Mm-hmm. This is before, you know, both Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk existed pre Disney like controlling. So like Disney likes to pat themselves on the back for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, that actually started to exist before Disney was in control of these projects. So, and uh, one of the only things that people remember from this movie is the fact that Tony Stark shows up at the end of the movie. And this movie actually doesn't have the traditional "quote unquote" post-credit scene, which is another interesting bit of trivia about it. And that was just done as a, as a favor to Marvel. Like he just showed up, and him and um, uh, William Hurt improvised their scene together because they're just both pros. But there is something refreshing about watching a movie where you don't get a sense that this, there's someone going like, you got to take that out for the kids or, you know, you got to think about this demographic. They're just making the movie they want. And I'm sure you'll cover this in your Iron Man episode, but like John Favreau and Robert Downey Jr. started making that movie without a completed script. And they just kind of figured it out together, which is why so much of Tony Stark and Robert Downey Jr. is so synonymous is that just is a character they built together from the ground up and they just made their movie. And so yeah, there's some adult content in there, but that's sort of like the natural extension of letting the guy who did like Swingers and and all those movies, <laughs> yeah, Vince Vaughn, that's right. make a super and who who was in Wolf of Wall Street, like that you let him make his movie, and here you just have a guy who made Transporter one and two, and Edward Norton co-writing the movie. So like this is kind of the movie you get out of that, and I found that kind of refreshing, even if I didn't necessarily enjoy the results on screen. I will say. One of the things that you're probably going to notice watching as these movies evolve is a slow like drift away from the original tone of the MCU, where the MCU is very much creating, these are superheroes in a real world. Iron Man, when you're watching that, you totally buy that this guy exists in 
our world like it feels like you're watching iron man deal with like the issues of the middle east and same thing here like you kind of get a sense of like this is the incredible hulk just in real harlem and these feel like just like superheroes feel like actual anomalies in a normal world while later films you know especially if you're paying attention to agents of shield and the netflix shows and all that stuff it just feels like this world overrun with weird things in it like over in new orleans you see cloak and dagger running around and then there's agents of shield running around and then the gardens of the galaxy land on earth and all the stuff where the movies cease to feel like these lived in places that happen to have superheroes in them they just they do feel like you know another superhero film with like the big budget disney movies you know and i think that's something that's kind of I'm I'm kind of sad to see that go. And that's actually one of the things I liked about the Netflix shows is it kind of obviously felt like a return to the original tone of the MCU in a lot of ways. So I wouldn't say I'm bothered by like seeing Abomination just literally bat <laughs> groups of civilians <laughs> into the air. It's like um, Lord of the Rings when they do the uh, in the beginning when it sets the tone is like uh, Sauron's just like swinging his hammer and like 12 yeah, dudes go flying this, into the air. <laughs> all those poor extras and CGI yeah. characters flying away. <laughs> I will say the thing I noticed more than anything was there was very much moments where I'm just like, ah, yes, 12-year-old CGI. <laughs> like, I can totally see it. <laughs> yeah, this is way worse than than Iron Man. Iron Man has really great CGI, and I think it's because... It still looks good. Yeah. yeah, it still looks great. I think there's certain scenes in Iron Man that they do a good balance of, like, we're, we're improving this scene with CGI because we use practical first. and uh, But then in Incredible Hulk, it's like, it's pretty pretty terrible yeah i think though what's interesting is i mentioned the i mentioned sauron batting away like extras in the beginning of lord of the rings and comparing that to abomination i think it also comes down to usage of content like violence should be frightening like watching abomination just like bat people away should be scary but i feel like there's a difference in feeling of like how something's being handled based on who's in charge and I think when I see like violence in the Lord of the Rings or even far more frightening things in the Lord of the Rings films, they're just less almost traumatic. I don't know how else to describe it other than that, because like you can have light traumas, too. And I it's funny because I wrote in my notes, too, that like for some reason that scene reminded me of Hellboy 2019, which I literally just can't escape. <laughs> it just seems to keep coming back as I watch more movies. So if this podcast ever stops, it's because that trauma has just taken over every movie I watch. <laughs> I'm just like trying to watch like Veggie Tales, and I have a flashback. <laughs> it's just like, what's happening? <laughs> but but um, yeah, I think maybe it's the usage of content because like this movie has things in it that I think if they were handled by more competent everybody involved, <laughs> then I feel like it almost would have just worked better, but it just doesn't. And I don't know that. I don't know. Have you seen, have you seen my letterbox review for this? I, I did not know at, at least my score. I, I gave this movie a one out of 10 half star. I hate it watching this movie which i mean i've never really hated an mcu movie i've maybe not liked one or two like i think ant-man is just just you can discard entirely i mean paul rudd's really fun to watch but at what cost <laughs> it's just at some point you just got to tell a man to stop and i just feel it but like incredible hulk was just so wrong and i don't know i half star man like that's wild <laughs> I don't just give those out. I have more two. I have more single stars, so two out of tens than I do half stars. 
like half stars i actually save for offensive movies and this one like i don't know maybe it just offended my senses <laughs> like my dignity yeah it's i will say the music's pretty good <laughs> i'll yes, say that about the movie i did notice that yeah. i thought that was okay it's pretty good i don't really remember a song from it and i can't really hum like a like a melody but yeah it was pretty solid yeah it's i'm i'm sounding more positive on it but like all of all of my like qualified things i'm saying i like about it like oh i like the tone a little bit i like that it doesn't feel like there's a lot of like cooks in the kitchen here but at the same time there's nothing really here to recommend the handful of things i will say that i liked oh like i liked tim blake nelson i liked abomination like his it becoming abomination more than the actual creature becomes because the creature becomes is like an ugly cgi mess that doesn't looks like a video game character it's like joker at the end of a uh, batman arkham asylum yes actually he looks exactly like that we're like it's actually That's just perfect. like not as exciting as what you expected it to be <laughs> yes <laughs> But like all that said, there's nothing really here to recommend. Like this movie is totally skippable. You cannot watch this movie and go right into Avengers and Mark Ruffalo is your Hulk. And it's pretty much that works just as well as an origin for him within the MCU. And if it wasn't for the handful of things that get brought back up, like there's a newspaper clipping of Hulk fighting abomination in like the Netflix shows the New York Bulletin. Iron Man two at the end has like a, the uh, aftermath of the fight at yes. the college. Yes. And that's like, I think, I think that's it. I don't think they really, well, Thunderbolt Ross's existence. Right. <laughs> right. And that's it. And even then that character, like I said, almost acts and sounds nothing like he does here. So it'd be one thing if this was like a really great movie and fans it'd be like it'd be like i could see being like a fan favorite if it was really good where everyone's like oh man the edward norton movie they don't really talk about it much because it's edward norton but it's great but pretty much everyone seems comfortable just letting this get buried you know nobody's advocating that, that they make more references to it or anything like that and it's because of the issues between universal and disney i was just about to ask like do you think this will ever First off, do you think it'll ever end up on Disney Plus? And then second off, do you think anyone even wants it on Disney Plus? That's a great question. Uh, I, Actually, third, would it even fit the Disney Plus model? <laughs> I mean, they have Inhumans on there, which is the worst thing in the entire MCU. Which leads to a fourth question. What even is the Disney Plus model? <laughs> yeah, there is no model. <laughs> if you're just going to go ahead and edit movies like Splash, then I don't know why Splash was even on it in the first place. <laughs> That's so weird. I've heard I've heard that the, like that the stuff that's edited out is itself stuff that was edited in and other. It's a big complicated thing. Was but yeah, if <laughs> if you're gonna sit there and worry about that, then I don't think I I I really have trouble seeing it end up on the service, and I don't think Disney's in a rush to get it because here's the, if Disney wanted to, they could they could make it happen. You know, they have the money, they have the power, they could they could bargain for it, they could share right whatever. But I don't think they're in a rush to put that Hulk movie starring Edward Norton onto their service. I am the only thing I'm really saddened about with the whole thing with them in universal is they can't seem to come to any sort of like, you know, peace about making another like actual like Hulk focused movie. It's why for those who do not know, for the 10 people who are not aware of this um, universal holds some sort of co distribution rights on the Hulk character where much similar to what the Sony situation, Disney would have to share some money with Universal. I don't know what to what extent that is, but Disney doesn't seem to want to share anything with anybody. So just because of that, that's why Hulk has ended up being a supporting character in all of these other movies. That's why the last time we saw him was in Thor Ragnarok. It's in outside of an Avengers movie is because 
Universal and Disney don't seem to want to play ball with each other. And Universal is one of the studios that actually is doing really well. They have the Fast and Furious movies, for example. So they don't really need to worry about like they're not in a position like Sony where the Sony is, is looking for some hits. Universal can keep going if they want to. So it's it's a it's a weird little movie that's more interesting to think about than than, <laughs> than to, to watch the things around it. I think it's interesting. Zach Penn was a writer on this because I don't know if you know this, but Zach Penn was actually at one point asked by Fox to write a big team up movie with all of the characters they owned. So he wrote a script for like an X-Men, Fantastic Four, Deadpool, Daredevil movie that didn't get made. Isn't that weird? Just this episode's weird. <laughs> I don't know how I don't know it's how the, we're even. <laughs> there's not um, this thing. There's no there's no, there's very little meat on these bones. It's a it's it's kind of a nothing movie with some some decent ish action. I really like. Okay, I'm going to say something else. I liked. I liked that first Hulk scene. I like that they waited a little bit to build up to the monster, and then you see him, and it's like a horror movie because he's like yeah, picking off those guys neat. one by one. Just it was so bad. <laughs> well, like... I like it because you can tell that the, they didn't want to spend the money in the effects at that point, so they like hid him in the shadows. And the few times you saw him, it's clearly like a CGI. It looked kind of like the Amazing Bulk a little bit a few times <laughs> yes, running around the background. Did. It did. That stuff was neat. <laughs> I like that there's all these like agents chasing Edward Norton who's like running across the rooftops and stuff. Little skinny Norton is running away from these. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm trying here. <laughs> I just, but like the thing about like all those scenes, again, it's just like, it's more like when someone's trying really hard, not like succeeding. <laughs> it's just like i don't know i just i before we started recording uh we were going to record in the morning right now it is the afternoon and um like daniel said he finished the movie like 10 minutes before we started and he had actually watched like an hour and a half already and i almost just was like you want to just like talk about the movie now <laughs> like, it's just like like you've basically seen the whole movie and there's nothing else to see I mean, really, because the rest of the movie after that point is like visually very dark and hard to watch. So it's like, what's the point of continuing? I like that they filmed on location. They clearly filmed in like New York. Oh, yeah. I like stuff like that. The last movie shot on film in the MCU. Oh, really? So that's that's a thing. Even though Iron Man 2 visually looks like a better movie and actually has lighting. Like Iron Man 2 has really good lighting. But then this one is just like everything's just green, which is annoying because it came out at the time when everything was green. Like Gears of War was like kind of a green filter. Uh, Fallout 3 had that weird gross green filter. All this media was doing green, but nobody realized that it just looked disgusting and terrible. (laughs) It was like looking through like a fish tank that hasn't been cleaned and had like an algae bloom. It's just like, please stop. This is not worth it. What, let's talk about this. Would would there have been would Edward Norton have done well if he stuck in with the rest of the team, or do you think Edward Norton and the rest of the MCU just wouldn't have worked because he's just a very difficult person to work with? So that gets to me that gets that touches upon a larger issue, which is the way Disney in the Marvel Cinematic Universe machine deals with creative people. There is there is a film critic I used to be a big fan of. His name is Confused Matthew. He doesn't do film reviews anymore. I think he deleted all his videos and stuff. So I don't know if you can find this stuff. But he had a whole multi-part series where he talked about it. one of his frustrations with like the way Disney deals with all these people who <laughs> dared to, you know, think outside the Disney Disney box and try to, you know, make their own thing. And this was early on. That was a huge point of contention. I feel 
Um, Iron Man 2 is the last film that John Favreau directed for them for good reason. You know, he, they just didn't want to deal with him. Mickey Rourke vowed never to work with Marvel ever again. And then as you get go further on, like Thor The Dark World, the whole thing with Patty Jenkins leaving. And so Edward Norton, I feel like would have been a huge issue for them, but I don't know if he's an issue in a bad way. I don't know if there's anything wrong with people wanting to put a lot of their own creative influences into a character. And I know Edward Norton is sort of notorious for being difficult to work with, not just here, but outside to the point where they made, he played a character of himself in Birdman as a difficult to work with method actor guy. <laughs> so like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know if like you could have a shared universe type model with people like Edward Norton there constantly trying to pull the reins away from the studio to do his own thing. And we tend to romanticize those types of people because we always think of like the really great examples of when that really worked out where like a guy took the reins and put in a really great performance or, you know, the, you know, we think of these great directors and writers who fight with a studio for their vision of a movie and all that stuff. But occasionally that's not great. Like occasionally some people do need to be like reeled in you. That's how you get like really like self-indulgent films. That's how you get something like uh Tarsum, some of Tarsum's films. That's how you get like, as much as I like Terrence Malick, that guy needs an editor. And I think Tarantino at his worst is when he's making like three and a half hour movies that have all these like meandering parts in it that don't add anything. I think Inglourious Bastards would be better if they cut like 20 minutes out of it somewhere. So like we tend to romanticize the idea of like the rogue artist fighting the studio, but sometimes artists need to be, you know, reeled in a little bit. And so I don't know. I, I, it, I, I find it hard to speculate on things that didn't happen where we can't say for sure if he would have been better. I do kind of like his angle in the character, but at the same time, I really like Mark Ruffalo as the Hulk. I think he yeah. does a really great job. I think he nails that perfect boundary between a nervous kind of like guy who doesn't fit in with all these big hunky action heroes who becomes this big monster. You know, I will say that Edward Norton's performance seems a little more human. Like there's an earlier scene where you see him trying to learn Portuguese and I couldn't help but feel like if this has been a later movie, they've been like, Oh yeah, Bruce Banner. He's a genius. He knows all these languages. You know, I do think there's a little more human element there. I can't remember. He, there was a specific comic run that Edward Norton mentions as like his big influence on the character that other people mention as a good run on the character. But I mean, I I'm happy with what we got and I, I, I am curious as to what, a Edward Norton trying to fight with Disney, Disney and Marvel and Kevin Feige would have got brought us. Who knows? Who knows if we would have gotten a really great Hulk movie down the road because Edward Norton finally got his vision fulfilled. And it is kind of hypocritical of me to say that maybe it's good. We didn't get that his vision while at the same time, constantly <laughs> lamenting that Edgar Wright's vision for Ant-Man wasn't like come to fruition. So you want to try and, uh, you want to try and see if you can extrapolate anything biblical or something that could build us up as Christians in our worship I mean, of the Lord. <laughs> I don't think I don't think it takes a great theologian to sit here and, and come up with some sort of parallel between a man fighting an inner monster <laughs> to something spiritual. That's too that's so obvious. I don't think we need to really beat at it too much. I think there is something interesting you said about the dynamic where. Thunderbolt Ross and Colonel Glenn Talbot in the comics typically are obsessed with finding the Hulk. It's a very like, you know, white whale Captain Ahab kind of dynamic. And I think there is something to be said about unhealthy obsession where this this man is trying to destroy this other person. And he justifies it himself because he, th- he thinks he's protecting his daughter and he thinks he's like helping the country and the good old US of A. And in the end, he's really doing a lot more harm than good. And he ends up, ironically enough, creating a actual evil version of the Hulk in 
allowing Blonsky to undergo these, you know, super soldier serums and eventually become the abomination. I think there's something there. I think the movie, if it, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the reason I'm not going so hard on that is the movie doesn't either. These are things that you can kind of glean yes. just from watching the movie. That would have been a much more interesting movie. Or just talking with a friend about what they're struggling with. <laughs> you yeah. don't need this movie to, to have that conversation. Nobody needs this movie. Not even the MCU. <laughs> yeah, and not even this podcast. We could have skipped it, and none of you would have realized that we were skipping an MCU movie. But by gosh golly, my completionist nature just would not let me get through this without <laughs> watching this film. It's that weird thing where people want you to talk about the bad ones. Like People are going to want to hear you talk about Thor the Dark World. They're going to want to know where you stand on the big Age of Ultron debate. They're going to want to hear... you know. That kind of stuff. They they they're gonna want to hear you talk about the more controversial slash you know like movies with all the production problems. That's what people want to hear about. They want the gossipy movies. So I, I think people really want to hear you talk about it. But like we've mentioned, there isn't much here. So yeah, and I think that's why nobody really talks about the Incredible Hulk. I think I've only seen maybe like one video advertised to me, or or the algorithm has shown me on YouTube for this in like three years yeah i think i've seen more for like age of ultron and more for just general mcu stuff than i have anything else and it really is probably just because this is a nothing movie nothing yeah like because everything is just askew it's not like one scene is wrong and so then you want to watch it because you want to see how this one scene fails or is really funny or something like that it's just that like literally everything doesn't work and yeah so there's nothing really to talk about it's interesting though as you're saying like people want to hear you talk about like the bad movie and they want to hear you talk about the controversial movie and what's interesting is one of the things that like with cinematic doctrine that like i really had to reconcile with i think within the last four months especially when when 2019 was coming to a close was thinking about what what does it mean to kind of like deconstruct and take apart almost in a comedic entertainment fashion, a movie because a movie is something somebody's made and put work into. And like also because they're films, they're real people performing. And so if you were to take apart like bad, what performances and really mock it, then like, aren't you kind of mocking that person? Or like if somebody makes a movie and you're like mocking the movie, like how can you go around like, kind of having fun with how bad it is with while also not bullying somebody. And that sounds so interesting to hear, I'm sure, because like, okay, they're an adult. So you, how are you bullying an adult? Well, it's like, there's still a human being. Uh, and we all, we all really enjoy Mr. Rogers and the fact that like, he has such a childish kind of nature to him, but he even says like one of the things about being an adult, that's like hard as you forget what it's like to be a child. And if you remembered, then like maybe you'll empathize more with certain things. And so, yeah, adults can be bullied. I mean, even Mr. Rogers was bullied when you think about it. And that guy had some really, really heavy emotions even. And so like, for instance, like I've taken down one of my older reviews because I felt like, man, I think I was just being really mean to the director in this one or even the actors in the film. And so uh, or even at the turn of the year, I was thinking of making a best of and a worst of list of movies. And then I just decided to do neither because one, I just didn't really want to write a best of. And then also a worst of was like, yeah, but wouldn't I just be pointing out what bad movies so you can point and laugh at them? Or maybe you'll see them, even though I said this is bad because of some moral reason. So now you go out and see this 
morally reprehensible film and it's like am i responsible for that i just think there's a lot more nuance to tearing something apart than it is just like some youtuber finally putting out that next hit piece that they do and like i think like with the thing with the incredible hulk is it's safe enough to just be like it's just like a, it feels like an otherworldly property that no one really understood what they were working on and and also probably don't really care because the film feels like a movie where it's just a paycheck to everybody on set. It doesn't really play off like something like this is something super personal. This is something where this person is like really expressing their heartfelt belief. Like you said, it doesn't really have a purpose. There's no message that's being told to you. It's really just sad. Norton be sad. At the end of the day, if it's not going to say anything, first off, then why would I respond? and make a 50 minute podcast episode with my co-host. But also why would I also mock it? I don't, it's really interesting when you really get down to like the moral value of like taking apart a film. I don't know. I think it gets really hard. Cause like, I don't want to watch age of Ultron. And first off, first off, I don't want to watch age of Ultron. Not really. I didn't like it when I saw it in theaters, but I'm going to have to anyway, when we get there. But then second, like, I don't want to watch it and then not like it more than the first time. Like, ideally, I want to like it. <laughs> ideally, I wanted to like Incredible Hulk because I'd never seen it before. So it was kind of an anomaly in my life to be like, hey, I've seen all the other MCU movies except this one. I don't know. What What do you think about that? Like with like deconstructing media the the line of like are you mocking or are you bullying or like just simply recognizing bad traits and kind of having fun with it yeah i think that's a great question i don't think there's anything inherently sinful with making fun of something there, there's difference between doing something out of like it's mean-spirited versus something that's like there's a there's a loving way to mock something like i listen to i listen to a fair number of bad movie shows via the be they podcast or youtube shows or what have you you know mystery science theater 3000 and all that stuff and those come from a loving place where they're making fun of these out of a love for bad movies and when i and it, as we sit here and you know i take some jabs at this movie like i am somebody who's a fan of this franchise i overall have gleaned a fair amount of joy from watching these films and i love superheroes and all that stuff and so when i take when i complain about things in the mcu or when i sit down and like maybe like take apart the incredible hulk or iron man 2 or something you know i'm doing so out of a place of admiration and when i criticize movies it's because i love movies i if i didn't care about them at all i wouldn't say anything i do think there's a difference between doing something that's like mean-spirited where like you can spitefully like go at something because you have some other reason for hating it like you know i, I know there's people out there who really for whatever reason hate star wars they hate star trek or something and so they get a delight out of ripping up the part those properties and partially because a they're hoping to get a rise out of fans of those things but also because they take some delight out of being mean and i think there's a difference between that versus talking about a movie that you didn't like but you enjoyed not liking it or talking about a movie that is just really really bad and because you like movies so much you feel that there's value in pointing out where it goes wrong and what it like failed at doing because you know potentially someone could learn from that someone could do better and so i don't think things are off like the table for criticism or even mocking because people worked hard on them that's all movies that's all art and so like i think as long as you do that remembering that somebody worked hard on that thing i don't think there's really a problem with that and also like i don't think that every person making or working on a movie is also 100 percent a great person either which is always something to to keep in mind like 
because I think that also comes into play where you come you come to a movie that's made by somebody who's maybe controversial or themselves brings some baggage to the film that maybe needs to be talked about as well. So, or even hateful because like I took yeah. down my review that I thought was mean spirited, but I still very much have my Hellboy review up, yeah. and I really rip into like everybody who worked on that movie. I was like, this is a hateful, disgusting, mean spirited, evil movie. <laughs> like at some point it's like, I think I, I do agree that perhaps there are certain extents in which like tearing somebody down can be appropriate. I wonder if that's within the grounds of like, when you read in scripture about like praying for righteous anger, which is very hard to have. Like anger is very, like I get angry every day. <laughs> and the difficulty is learning to discern what what anger am I experiencing that's based on my my flesh or like my heart of stone, or is it based on the new heart that the Lord's given me? And I think in the case of movies, it's easy to see fans online as we used to have in Sindoc Group. I don't think we really experienced this much, but used to have with Sindoc Group where people would just get mad. <laughs> this is a, a real throwback, but it's still related and will definitely be brought up again when we get to phase three of the MCU. But Daniel, do you were you in the Sindoc Facebook group when Captain Marvel came out? I think so. I don't like talking about it. Like, I don't like talking about Captain Marvel. The movie or just... Yeah. Because <laughs> I don't like talking about the movie or that time in the Sindoc group. I am perplexed at the conversation around Captain Marvel, and I'm sure someday we'll get there, but... Well, now that you said you don't even like talking about it, I'm definitely having you on that episode of the podcast. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> I also think... I don't know if we, this is something people think about, but I think laughing at a movie with friends or making fun of it with friends or writing a funny review of a movie is also a form of enjoying a movie. You know what I mean? To some extent. I think that like the room would be buried and forgotten had it not had the second life as the movie that we now all know it as. And I don't know if it's necessarily what the, because what you get, what you're inadvertently stepping into is this idea of like enjoying a thing, not in the way that an artist intended it to and how much of a right an artist has to be upset at people for enjoying something in a way that they didn't mean for to, to be enjoyed. And like, I don't think you necessarily have a right as it, like if I, if I made a movie and then it inadvertently like caught on in some other way, like either as a so bad, it's good kind of movie or even like a, a it gained a cult following. Cause it act, I inadvertently touched upon themes that I didn't realize I was playing with. You know, kind of like something with like Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Well, yeah, that's a great example, actually. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which caught on with like with queer youth and became sort of an anthem for them. Or like that song, I'm Coming Out, that became sort of an anthem also for people like, you know, for the um, queer community as like a coming out song. Like people are enjoying those things and even finding like solace or comfort in them in ways that the people who made them may not have had any sort of like realization or understanding of. And I don't think that's wrong. I don't. And I think if, especially as a filmmaker, you make, why do you make films? And I would like to think that a majority of filmmakers just hope people enjoy them, hope people escape from reality for a second, or maybe get something out of them. And if people are throwing whole festivals for Troll 2, that is far more, of, people are getting far more out of that movie than anyone involved in that could possibly realize. You know, Blobfest, like yeah. part of people people's love of those movies is not necessarily because they enjoy them as like deep art, but there's people are finding something in them. And I do think that like that we have an entire almost subgenre of film criticism around in a an ironic but also kind of sincere appreciation of quote unquote bad movies. 
Now, I think the issue is that s- people look at those things and they take it in the wrong direction where you get into something like a cinema sins kind of thing where then it just becomes a nitpicky like thing where movies become a thing to beat where people want to show that they're superior to those dumb movies. They point out all the quote unquote plot holes. I don't think that's the same thing at all. I agree. I, I think there's a difference between, you know, lovingly riffing on a movie and talking about why it's bad and then even finding something good in it versus just let's talk about all the ways this movie is terrible. So, yeah. And I think that's kind of one of the differences between something like the room or the last vampire on earth or suburban Sasquatch, where all three of those (laughs) movies can be enjoyed as inept, but not like in a bad way. It's more like cute. Like those movies have like a cute quality in their attempt to, to, to kind of make sense. Yeah. But like, I think about something like Star Wars Episode Eight, or like, or Episode Nine, or Episode One, Two, Three, or yeah, <laughs> and even Six. Some people really don't like Six. Yeah, I've seen people online that like really hate it, and they're like, "This is the beginning of George Lucas's descent into selling yep. toys and stuff yep. because of uh, Ewoks." Like, how does how does a clone trooper get destroyed by an Ewok? I mean, it's got armor. Yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. I, I know somebody specifically says, I like, he's like, I like the first three Star Wars movies, except for the second half of the third one, because then it became like for kids or something. Yeah. Like, that's an actual thing, you know? And I mean, even the first movie, uh, episode, first movie, this is why I hate the ordering. Episode one even feels like a kid's movie of all, mostly of all of them. But then at times is like kind of, adult too it's really confusing <laughs> i was i was just do you know do you know who griffin newman is he he was on the tick and he also has he's on the blank check podcast i don't know i don't know him uh he he has a whole thing about like oh, what's his name awada wado the slave trader oh yeah guy oh, yeah. I and mean, it's like he's like as a kid i really loved that character I really related to him and i got older i realized he's a jewish stereotype and so, like, he had this comp. He has this whole like complicated one man show that he created around talking about like. <laughs> it's really funny, but like, it's it's a genuine thing where he's like, "This is a racist Jewish stereotype," but at the same time, I that he reminded me of like older relatives as a kid. So, like, what do I make of this thing? You know? <laughs> so it's like so bad. <laughs> yeah. When you when you feel convicted by a Star Wars movie, <laughs> yeah, let alone one of George Lucas's. Uh, directed movies that's insane at least that one hasn't been edited right i don't think episode one has been edited (laughs) who knows he might be doing it in secret right now we don't know why would he edit four five and six but not one's racial stereotype dude i don't know (laughs) 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 you know what this han solo need han solo scene needs with greedo another edit (laughs) but my racial stereotype in episode one nah (laughs) That's okay. That can stay right there. Thank goodness. At least The Incredible Hulk is just an embarrassing movie where people just don't want it to exist anymore. I mean, Disney doesn't even like if, Like you said, if they wanted it, they could just buy it and put it on their service. Lord knows they need more movies and more stuff to actually offer. Like, could you imagine if they could actually get all of the movies and definitively say, hey, you want to watch the MCU in its entirety? We got you covered. I have to go like borrow my debt, my father-in-law's voodoo to watch all of these movies if I really want. Like some people would have to rent the Incredible Hulk to keep up with even just cinematic doctrines coverage of this stuff. Jeez. Like, how am I going to get through? Oh, well, actually, I did just see that he, uh, my father-in-law just bought Spider-Man Far From Home. So you know what? I'm good. We're good. Okay. <laughs> I'm not glad I watched this movie, but I'm glad I never have to ever again. Yeah, there you go. 
Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cinematic Doctrine. If you've seen The Incredible Hulk, what did you think of it? Is this film worth watching during an MCU binge? Or is this film wholly and completely skippable? If you're listening on Cinematic Doctrine's website, let us know in the comments below or shoot us an email to cinematicdoctrine at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving a review for the podcast on your respective podcast app at the end of this episode. Unlike YouTube or Reddit, there isn't really a way to let us know how we're doing with a thumbs up or thumbs down. So the best way to leave your thoughts on the podcast is to write a review on iTunes, Podchaser, or wherever you listen. And as mentioned before, Cinematic Doctrine has a Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you're opted into a once-a-month movie poll where you decide a movie we discuss on the podcast. You also gain access to the Sindoc pre-show, the upcoming Patreon-exclusive podcast series where my co-host Daniel and I casually talk movies, Christianity, and life itself. There are other unique benefits that come with supporting the podcast, so be sure to check them out at patreon.com forward slash cinematic doctrine. A special shout out to those who support at the Art House Theater tier on Patreon. Thank you so much, Mom, Dad, and Melanie. You guys are the best, and your continued monetary support is greatly appreciated. All of this will be available in the show notes. Until next time, stay cool. Want some Cinematic Doctrine swag? You're in luck. We've got 3-inch Cinematic Doctrine logo stickers exclusive for Patreon supporters. Perfect for your travel mug or laptop. Head over to patreon.com forward slash cinematic doctrine, link in the show notes, and choose the independent theater tier. Doing so will net you other perks too. But let's be real, the podcast stickers are the coolest perk. So get yourself some podcast stickers by supporting on Patreon.